Hello and welcome to Fair Voice. I'm your host, Hannah Sirak, and I'm so excited to be here. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent the opinions of Fair Mormon, the organization, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get started on our Sunday special, I want to plug the 2020 Fair Mormon Conference. This conference takes place from August 5th to 7th, and because of COVID, you can watch it wherever you are. So for the one price of $59.95, you can watch the online conference in real time. You can view the conference on demand immediately after the conference for a year. You have the chance to submit questions to speakers during the conference. You get free shipping on books during the conference and a couple other things. So you should totally look into doing that. Um, Please sign up today for the Fair Mormon Conference. We really would love you, your support in this matter so we can keep having awesome conferences. Some of our speakers include Valerie Hudson, Anthony Sweat, John Gee, Daniel Peterson. We have some great speakers. There are, there are many others. It should be a really interesting time. I know one of the papers that I'm really, one of the presentations rather, that I'm really looking forward to is Joseph Smith's new translation of the Bible, his use of Adam Clark's Bible commentary, and the question of plagiarism by McGee. I think that should be a really good presentation, and I would love, love for you to join us for that. So, moving on to the Today Sunday Special. I got a lot of feedback on what you guys were wanting for the Sunday Specials, and you said that you wanted something more family-oriented that was more of a general principle, a general topic, as opposed to the Thursday episodes, which tend to be about more of a specific topic. So, originally I was going to do a review of ancient, of producing ancient scripture. I was going to do a long podcast review. We will break that up and have that across the Thursday episodes instead. And today we're going to have a conversation about how to read the scriptures, how to be an apologist, essentially. I think this should be a really fun episode. You're going to hear a lot about my journey. I'm going to talk to you about some resources that you can use. So this should be a really interesting episode. Um, when we talk about apologetics, let's define some terms first. So apologetics is not this idea that you need to apologize for the church. I feel like that's the first thing most people think about when they hear apologetics. Apologetics is a, relig a religious discipline that involves defending a particular religion. It comes from the Greek word apologia. So this means basically speaking in defense of. Um, Logia comes from logos. Um, it's just a dialogue and apo was added to the, the front of it. So apologetics is basically the term that is used to describe people who want to defend their faith. And we have a lot of really great apologetics that we do, but I want to talk about how you can become an apologist and just some general principles that I think will help you read the scriptures. And then I'm going to dive in to one of my examples of apologetics and how I think understanding guiding principles, hearkening back to that Spencer Marsh interview is really important in determining how you too can defend the faith. So the first thing that you need to understand is that apologetics does not come from a place of intellectualism. I think that might sound a bit contradictory because apologetics is a field that people do get degrees in and people do practice. 
But there's a difference between seeing a system as philosophically consistent versus seeing a system as true. And apologetics strives to see a system as true and philosophically consistent as opposed to just one or the other. So in order to enter into apologetics, I think the first thing one must do is basically believe in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever that means for for you as you see within the temple recommend questions, as you see within what the brethren have said. And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily that what you feel is the best way to go. I mean more where we all set our own boundaries and limits with the Holy Spirit based on correct principles. And these correct principles are very clear. The doctrine of Christ is very clear. So that's the first thing that I think most people need to do is make sure that they have a testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about good practice when reading the scriptures. Oftentimes when we read the scriptures as religious folk, our inclination is to do this thing called eisegesis. Eisegesis is essentially reading into a text. So eisegesis is really important. When you do eisegesis, that is when you are reading scripture and you're trying to understand how it applies to you personally and how it relates to your situations. This though in apologetics can be kind of dangerous, this is where we get the phrase proof text. So proof text is a passage of scripture that people use to support a doctrine, belief, or principle often taken out of context, often not representing the original intent of the author, that sort of stuff. So because as religious people, we often have our favorite scriptures that we really like, we often have these phrases that just stick in our mind, we can use these phrases to mean something other than they actually mean. My favorite example for this is pretty much everyone and their brother will talk about the phrase, by their fruits ye shall know them. And they'll just talk on and on and on about how this phrase applies to how you can understand whether or not someone is a good person. And I can see the extra, 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 extrapolation for that. But if we go down to the verse, so the by their fruits you shall know them comes from Matthew 7. That's an example of it. So let's read Matthew 7 and I'll read the pericope. The pericope is basically the paragraph. So this is 15 to 20 because as I'll talk about a little bit later. The Bible did not originally have verses. So it reads, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Oftentimes, people will say that this verse applies to everyone. But if you look at it in context, right here, he's talking about false prophets. He begins it by saying, beware of false prophets. That doesn't necessarily mean that extrapolating it in that sense is wrong. It doesn't mean that the idea of doing that is wrong, but it does mean that you're reading something into the text that isn't in the original context of the text. The original context of the text refers to false prophets. And I think this is a really good example because we often say, 
when we're talking about normal people, by their fruits ye shall know them. Um, and that's not necessarily true. We all sin, we all f- fall short of the glory of God. But with, with false prophets, this is going back to the test of a prophet that we see in De- Deuteronomy, which is essentially that a false prophet will not issue a false prophecy. That's the difference. So now that we have an understanding of what proof texts are in Jesus, we need to talk about what is common, what you need to know, and how you can do exegesis. Exegesis comes from the Greek word that means to lead out. When you're doing exegesis, you are drawing the meaning out from a text instead of reading meaning into the text. When you are doing exegesis, you want to ask the following questions. What did the author intend for this to say? What is the immediate literary context of this? What comes before this passage? What comes after this passage? How does this relate to the greater book that is in? So, for example, we'll just use the Matthew 7 passage. We were just talking about that. We can talk about the structure of Matthew. We can talk about how Matthew has different sections that talk about sermons and kingdoms, and he has a very set structure. So you can talk about how this fits into the greater narrative, how it fits into the greater themes. Basically, you want to find out why the author made it the way that he he or she did, the purpose of that, and how that helps you understand the text. Exegesis basically comes from this idea of textual criticism. This is one of the earliest forms of textual scholarship. Basically, this is just asking how does the creation and historical transmission of a text and its variants influence the way that we read the text? These are important questions to ask. So specifically with our scriptures, we have a couple different ways that we can look at it. So first off, let's talk about which of our scriptures are restored and which of our scriptures are passed down or transmitted. The Bible was transmitted and When we talk about the Bible, I think we forget that there was a transmission, but also a compilation process. So when the Bible was originally written, there was a period of time where there was oral transmission. So people would talk about the stories that we see in the Bible proper. Bible just comes from the Greek word that means book, biblion. Um, People would talk about the stories that are in the Bible and then eventually a scribe wrote them down. They were copied several times and I mention this not because I think there were nefarious monks who were copying the text. I mention this because there are natural variants and errors that come with doing that. I know when I even copy my own notes, I leave out some words by accident. I add in some words and we don't we don't think that that's necessarily that big of a deal, but in some instances, um, like in Luke 22, 43 to 44, whether or not the, the, those verses were in there is incredibly important. Um, you also have examples of stories being moved around throughout the transmission process. A good example is the woman who was caught in adultery. Um, so we know this story as being in the Gospel of John. However, originally it was in the Gospel of Luke, and it doesn't appear until much later. This is why textual criticism is so valuable. So with the Bible, that's an example of a transmitted text. That means it's been passed down and understanding how there was the, the Bible was canonized. Canonized is referring to the, the compilation process because the authors of the of the text in the Bible have other works that they wrote that did not make it into the Bible. There were also other early Christian writings and other Jewish writings that 
the canonization process determined either didn't have correct authorship, had inconsistent themes and narratives that they didn't think comported with what they wanted the Bible to be, other reasons like that. We still have access to these texts, but they weren't preserved as much as the Bible texts. So you have to understand that there was a interesting writing process that wasn't just someone writing it down. It was someone saying, okay, like we're, we've talked about the story for a long time and we think that Moses said it, so we're going to write it down. Um, but there was also this element of transmit transmission. There's this element of canonization. And then we also have the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. And the way that these were given to us, so the the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price were ancient records that were translated by Joseph Smith, so there wasn't really that transmission process. And I, I would say it's hard to talk about the, the transmission of the Book of Mormon beyond what the Book of Mormon tells us, so I'm just going to say, you know, there was transmission and then there was an abridgment of it um, with the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses. Um, those books are ancient records as well, but the Doctrine and Covenants is modernly written. So you, you had prophets and apostles and um, other people who helped write the Doctrine and Covenants, and that is a very important text, and we have the textual history for that as well. So when we talk about scripture, understanding the different parts of scripture is helpful because it helps you identify how to talk about the greater context. For example, within the Bible, you have, let's talk about the four gospels real quick. You have the four gospels. Three of them are considered the synoptic gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason being there is some similar material amongst Matthew, Mark, and Luke that doesn't exist within John. And these gospels take the same synopsis. They take the same basic narrative of Jesus and they use different quotations, different stories to flesh it out. Most of the material though is similar whereas John is I believe about 90% unique when compared to the synoptic gospels. Understanding this critical difference will help you to understand how to talk about the Bible in a more intelligent and effective manner. You'll be able to point out similarities, you'll be able to point out harmonies, and that'll help you in your broader discussions of scripture. Understanding the principles of exegesis and eisegesis is incredibly helpful just so you know when you're looking at a text, are you supposed to be considering whether it is a synoptic gospel or a Gnostic gospel? Are you supposed to be considering the greater purpose of it with the Doctrine and Covenants? Do you know what other revelations were given at the time? Who was aware of them, that sort of situation, because all of that impacts the way that you read a text. So my first suggestion to you, if you're looking to become an apologist, is to try to understand the history of these texts, to understand the transmission process, the translation process, and that sort of stuff. I think that's incredibly important because it informs the way that you do exegesis on a practical level. Another important aspect of becoming an apologist in my mind is having a really solid understanding of biblical languages. This might be a little bit controversial because some people will assert that since we have so many good translations of the Bible, you can use these different translations to 
see the Greek and the Hebrew even in the English. And what I mean by that is you could take the NIV, the NRSV, other the KJV, and you could read these and determine what the intent of the Greek and Hebrew was. Well, I think that's a noble effort. I'm not convinced that that's entirely correct. The reason being because in Greek you can have words, well, and here in Hebrew too, you can have words that have shades of meaning. For example, there are multiple words that mean to know. There's a word that means to know by empiricism, so to know by experience, but then there's a word that means to know in a more metaphysical, spiritual, soulful way. And because of this, when we translate it into English, we lose out on these nuances. There's also different types of love. There's you know, agape, there's eros, but there's also, I don't know, storge is a good type of love that we could talk about, philia. And English just uses the one word for love. And, and my favorite example of this can be found in the Gospel of John. And the reason I like this is because it shows the different uses of the word love. So we're going to go to John 21 and we're going to look at the Greek um, and I'll translate it for you. And I'll just do sort of a fun live translation because might as well that's the best that's the best kind to do in my humble opinion is live translations alrighty then i'll read it first and i'm going to use some emphasis so you can know what i'm talking about um therefore after they had dined uh jesus said to simon peter simon of john do you have more charity for me than these he says to him Yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a friend. He says to him, then feed my lambs. He says to him again a second time, Simon of John, do you have charity towards me? Um, He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a friend. He says to him, then shepherd my sheep. He says to him the third time, Simon of John, do you love me like a friend? Peter was grieved because he had said this to him the third time. Do you love me like a friend? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you like a friend. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. There are a couple really interesting things that we can talk about, but I hope you caught on to the difference between agape and philia because that's what's going on here. Jesus asks him twice if he has charity for him, not just if he wants to be friends with him, which is what philia means. And I think you know that because of Philadelphia. Jesus asks him, hey, do you have charity for me? Do you have a higher form of love for me than you have for other people? And Peter is unable to respond at this time. The reason I think that this is really interesting is it gets lost in translation and it adds deeper meaning to what Jesus is asking because he also switches from saying, feed my lambs to feed my sheep. So he's, he shows, Jesus shows here, that Peter, one, wasn't ready to live up to the higher law of love that was expected, which is totally fine. We all need to progress, right? And two, it shows a shift from lambs, which are unblemished, to sheep, which are good. And you can remember this from the parable of the sheep and the goats, but still not in the same realm as lambs. Understanding this in the Greek makes it a lot more of a rich experience. So again, if you want to learn Greek, 
what I or Hebrew, I would look at Logos, I would look at Bible Hub, I'd look at Smyth or Greek grammar. I would just try to jump right in, learn Biblical Greek, and learn Biblical Hebrew. Biblical Greek is called Koine Greek. And if you want to be an apologist, I think that this is super important because drawing upon the original text can be much more helpful than drawing upon a translation. So that way people can understand that the points you're making are borne out even more through, you know, the original text. So moving on from that, um, so again, another step to becoming an apologist is I personally think making sure that you know the scriptures so well. And, you know, I talked a lot about like learning them in Greek and Hebrew to understand the nuances, but something that I did that I find really effective is picking an audience for my apologetics. I understand that you know, there's a lot of different options for how we can go about memorizing scriptures. Picking an audience is super important because it helps you determine what types of scriptures you're going to memorize. So when we're talking about apologetics, a lot of the time they are written to the Christian world because it assumes Jesus as a buy-in to a degree or the Bible as a buy-in to the degree. There are certain warrants upon which you can build your apologetics. And I think that this is really important because when we treat apologetics differently for secular humanists than we treat it for, I don't know, evangelical Christians or Catholics, I think that's effective. The evangelical worldview, wildly different than a secularist worldview, has different logical flaws that you can deconstruct while constructing your argument. And what I mean by that is, let's take the example of sola scriptura. So evangelicals believe scripture is the final authority. What you would have to do is show from scripture why scripture is not actually the final authority. And believe it or not, that's pretty easy. Um, the scriptures say that, you know, it's God breathed, but the scriptures do not seem to have any sort of call of infallibility um, towards them. Even in the Book of Mormon, you say, like, if there are mistakes, then there are of men. And men do make mistakes. But anyways, yeah, so you can use the warrants that they have as a way of trying to dismantle their arguments. So when you're trying to memorize scriptures, it's important to remember who your audience is. Knowing the scriptures well enough to be able to refer to them in close succession is really important. And I found that that's super effective. The way that I memorize scriptures is I write down the verse on an index card. And on the other side of the index card, I write down a summary of the verse. So then when I study these, I at least get the idea of the verse memorized, if not the entire verse itself. So memorizing these scriptures is so effective and will really help you as you strive to be an apologist. This has been a fun segment so far. We, we still have some more stuff, but I just wanted to say, this is really fun. I like this subject and I feel like it's a little bit more lighthearted than what we've been doing recently. Another another way that you can become an apologist, another thing that you have to do in my opinion is not just know the, the standard works really well, but know the works that people care about. So the Journal of Discourses, that's a really good read. I think everyone who wants to be an apologist should read the Journal of Discourses. Read foundational documents such as that because if you have familiarity with these, you'll understand the LDS theological worldview a lot more. I, I thought for myself that I understood LDS theology pretty well when I was like 19. But then I read a ton of early church books 
and then I was like, okay, maybe maybe the theology is slightly different than I thought it would be. This helps you understand the purview of LDS theology. It helps you understand the narrative of LDS theology. I think that this could transform the way that you do your apologetics um, if you are able to center it in the history of theology. Um, so that's just a short point, but read as much by other theologians and other apologists that you can, especially LDS ones. Um, Blake Osler is great. Robert Boylan is great. Um, Joseph Spencer is terrific. Um, I like Orson Pratt. Um, there's a lot of different individuals that you can read that are very helpful for you understanding and gaining your grounding in your apologetics. Now, the next part. This is the part that I personally spend the most time on. This is not what everyone spends the most time on. It really depends on what your goals are and how you see yourself going about this. I spend probably the most time, um, minutes-wise, on reading anti-Mormon literature. Um, one, I'm writing a book on it, so that's helpful. And two, I think that for me, I am better able to see my own arguments when I'm confronted with the opposite of them. It helps me to construct them logically, going from A to Z, and understand where other people are coming from. So, reading anti-Mormon literature is something that I think you have to do when you're an apologist. And let's talk about why the church doesn't advise that we read anti-Mormon literature, because I think there are some valid reasons for it. Anyone who's been in the church knows that there's this stigma around it. There's this idea that it'll help, it'll lead you away from your faith or whatever like that. I understand that. I, I, do, I really do. Because when you're confronted with arguments that seem authoritative, that draw upon different warrants than you would construct an argument from, your beliefs definitely do feel attacked. Because that's the purpose of this literature. We're not talking about literature that is necessarily... Um, critical of the church, but it doesn't go beyond that. I don't classify that as anti-Mormon literature. For me, anti-Mormon literature has to be constructed with the purpose of taking down the church, not just as a means of criticism. I think the two are different. And just because something says that the LDS church isn't true, does it make it anti? It makes it wrong, for sure, but it doesn't necessarily make it anti, and I think that differentiation is helpful. Here's what I recommend when doing, when reading anti-Mormon sources. I have a couple recommendations. The first is for every single anti-Mormon source you read, I would read the rebuttal to that, and I think that's only fair. If someone tells you not to read the rebuttal to that, their motives are kind of disingenuous. Um, so, for example, the first time I read the CES letter, I got kind of freaked out because it's a very long letter. It piles upon criticism after criticism. The criticisms are quite short and they're not effectively borne out. And because of the way that the CES letter was framed, when some of the questions asked um, had errors in them or would lead you to a specific conclusion when the question wasn't in fact true and the conclusion could only be true based on the incorrect question, but it still had some factual errors in it. I got really caught up and I thought that it seemed authoritative because it was giving me straightforward answers. However, I read a couple rebuttals. I read more than one rebuttal to the CEO's letter, but 
I read a couple of rebuttals to the CES letter and I was like, wait, okay, now I think that this is really wrong because of the evidence that has been given to me. So I think it's really important to read a mix of both. I think it's really important to read a mix of, you know, what what the anti-Mormon sources say, especially if you want to be an apologist, but also just read about what LDS people have said about them or what Catholics or what evangelicals or atheists or humanists. There have been a lot of different instances where people have responded to anti-Mormon literature in a variety of different ways that I find just super effective. Um, An important part of this too is I think understanding philosophical principles and understanding how evidence works can be helpful for reading anti-Mormon literature. What I mean by that is absence of evidence, sorry, evi- yeah, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's the best way to describe it. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, we haven't found a horse, therefore the Book of Mormon isn't true, or hey, we haven't found a coin, therefore the Book of Mormon is true, they're using, it isn't true, they're using this, this idea that because we don't have evidence, therefore we cannot find evidence, therefore it is not true. That's just a really disingenuous way to argue something. You don't argue something from absence of evidence. You have to argue something based on the evidence that we do have. That's the most important point that I can make with anti-Mormon literature is oftentimes I see it say, because we don't have these six things, we don't understand this, we don't know why this happened, then of course the church must not be true. That's a really disingenuous way of arguing things in my opinion. Another important another important aspect of this is the philosophical principles that I mentioned. These philosophical principles often come in the forms of logic. So doing a little bit of study on logic can be very helpful. Understand logical fallacies, understand the way that argumentation works, and so that way you can know how to critique a particular book. And if it's set up as a Q&A, you got to make sure that you look at both the questions and the answers and you don't just assume that the questions are worded in a way that is fair or in a way that is academically honest or that it has integrity. Um, A lot of the time, it won't, to be honest with you. So when reading anti-Mormon literature, make sure to critically examine it using philosophical principles and also using best practices from the disciplines that they're in. Um, A lot of people will say, you know, but Egyptologists don't agree on the Book of Mormon. Let me talk a little bit about John Gee. John Gee is in the top 4% for the Egyptologists published in the world. He got his PhD from Yale and um, he got it with Rob Rittner. All of Rittner's students, every single one of Rittner's LDS students has stayed in the church, believing to our knowledge that the Book of Abraham is historical. So... While people will push back against John Gee and say that he, you know, is an apologist and therefore doesn't have the same amount of scholarly integrity as other people, I'd like to remind remind you, as he did in his previous episode, that he has published in secular journals about the Book of Abraham, he has published in secular journals about pretty much everything, and that he has solid evidence for his claims, and it's possible to find solid evidence for your claims. There isn't this monolith of what 
people say, especially in humanities, especially when it comes to archaeology, especially when it comes to critical text and uh, critical the critical textual theories, um, that sort of stuff, you're going to see a variety of different opinions, and these different opinions are important to understand because you can see that there are going to be opinions that oppose the LDS worldview, and there are going to be opinions that support the LDS worldview. And personally, I have consistently found the arguments that support the LDS worldview far more compelling than the arguments that do not support this view. I think the best way to do this is to spend time reading one LDS apologetics article a week and one non-LDS apologetics article a week and one non-LDS scholarly article per week. Um, and obviously read some more LDS scholarly articles. But by, by doing this, you get multiple perspectives, you understand more, and I think you're able to construct your arguments with greater fluidity and greater strength. That being said, you're at this point where you're probably like, okay, okay, Hannah, so you have me reading a lot of stuff, you have me studying a lot of stuff, what's next? I want to actually go out and do something. Before you go out and do something, this is something that I personally did, um, you don't take it or leave it. This is something I personally did, but I, I, I can understand the inclination. I think a lot of the time when we get excited about something, we want to come forward and tell everyone. We want to be like, okay, I understand that this feels like my calling now. I'm going to tell everyone, but I don't necessarily think that's a great idea. So what I personally did was I've been studying Greek for a number of years, Hebrew for a number of years, Latin as well, some other languages, some other ancient languages. I kind of kept to myself about about this. I spent a lot of time doing exegetical work with the scriptures and there are many instances that I saw things in scripture that I thought conflicted with my LDS worldview at times and it took me a long time to be able to work through those and see them in the greater scheme of the Bible, see them in the greater scheme of the canonized works. Um, so I actually read way more than I wrote. And I think that that's the most important thing that you can do. I tend to say for just, you know, non-religious op-eds, maybe read 10 times as much as you write. That's a general rule of thumb, 10 times as much as you write. But for religious op- for religious pieces, religious essays, articles, I would say read 100 times more than you write, at least in the beginning, because... If you are to do that, you will have a solid understanding of the counter-arguments that will arise. Because one of the hardest things about LDS apologetics is basically coming to terms with the arguments that will be levied against you. I was talking with my good friend Spencer about this the other day. It's really easy once you enter into apologetics to kind of feel like you're on your own. A lot of the time and that's because you probably will be if you're doing it within your own personal spheres because there are a lot of disparate opinions and most people who are not in the church if that is the majority of people you talk to which for many of you it is don't agree with the warrants that you have and I think that taking that step back and being able to know that you've read enough to have the opinions that you have is super important. Another thing to remember is the number one claim that anti-Mormons and even some ex-Mormons will lobby against apologetics of the church, um, oh, sorry, apolog- apologists of the church is that they are disingenuous, they're not honest, they, if they had critical thinking, 
then they would understand that they are wrong. This is one, an ad hominem, and two, wrong. <laughs> the reason it's wrong is because it assumes that there is one way to experience things. And I'm not talking about how experiences constitute reality. I think that there are eternal laws that exist outside of God, that exist outside of us, that God facilitates for our exaltation. That's my worldview. But I believe there are a multitude of experiences, but experiences do not construct objectivity. Objectivity is not something that we experience. Objectivity exists despite our relative experience, if that makes sense. So when people say that you can't be honest and be an apologist, they are just lobbying an an ad hominem and they're pushing their worldview in a very negative and nefarious way. I think, personally, saying that someone cannot be an honest apologist is like saying someone can't be an honest scholar. There's so many different worldviews that take time to unpack. There's so many different experiences that we have, spiritual, secular, whatever it may be, that can construct us to have the opinions that we have. That doesn't make our opinions right or wrong, but it does make them honest. And I think that that's a really important point when we talk about apologetics. Um, So I would make sure that you read way more than you write. And that seems like simple advice, but it's, I, I think, incredibly helpful. Another thing that I would advise is to not become combative. And this can be hard. I've interacted with Calvin Street preachers. I've interacted with secular humanists who are anti-Mormon. I've interacted with a lot of people who strive to take down the church. And it's really easy to get frustrated with them because a lot of the time they'll yell at you or they'll, mostly they'll yell at you. Um, and if they do that, it can be hard to take that step back and understand where they're coming from. Oftentimes we want to assume that they're coming from an inherently negative place. To be honest with you, I'm not going to say that all of them are not because I don't think that that's fair either to say that every single person who's anti-Mormon is super great. I don't think that's true. I think there are some people who are anti who legitimately believe what they're saying, who are not trying to be evil, who are not trying to be wrong, who are not trying to mislead people. I think that they legitimately believe what they say and they're so worried about the salvation of souls, they're so worried about the other issues that they bring up that they are willing to stake their livelihood on that. And if you're that way, that's fine. But there are some people who are just not honest about it, who just in the same way that you're going to find not honest people in the church, you'll find not honest people outside of the church who are not trying to come to grips with the truth, but they're trying to destroy the truth. And I think learning to take a step back, learning to be able to evaluate those claims, I would say is super important. The best example I have of this, this is something that I discovered in my own personal life and it's been very helpful. If someone criticizes the church for having so much money, but then profits off of that criticism more than, you know, an average living and uses that money not in donation, but uses that money for themselves, I think that that can be kind of hypocritical because you're doing the same thing that you're criticizing other people for. And I'm not saying, uh, most uh, sorry, most anti-Mormons don't do that. I, I know a lot of them, most of them don't do that. But understanding that there are these 
cues that you can look for to see if someone's motives are correct or not. That's just a side note. Um, I don't think it's as important as the other things, but the last couple things that I want to share about how to be an effective apologist is we're now going to talk about writing. Writing is hard. I think writing is hard because you want to achieve clarity, but you also want to achieve a sort of intellectual feel to it or I've seen some good apologetics that are definitely not intellectual that get to the point really quickly and that cater to Gen Z, that cater to millennials. I want to talk about how you need to develop an audience. We talked a little bit earlier about developing an audience, but there's a there's a different way that we can also do that. So we can pick an audience in the sense that you can pick a group of people that you want to talk to. So for example, the audience of this podcast is mostly LTS people. So I understand that there are certain warrants that we are operating under, but I also understand the demographics and the demographics can be helpful when you're writing your apologetics, when you're doing your apologetics. I personally think the greatest need for apologetics exists for people who are Gen Z, millennials. I think that is the age range that we don't have enough stuff for. I think we have a lot of stuff for older older people and younger I would say I would say if you're below the age of 14 and you're interested in apologetics fantastic I don't think there's that much of a market though but picking the audience that you want to work for do that just do that right right off the bat and obviously you can write things for the greater community but your apologetics becomes more effective when it's focused because when it's focused then you can construct arguments that would make sense to the group that you are trying to help come unto Christ. The next tip that I have is don't take money for your apologetics if you can help it. There are some instances in which I think it's okay. Like I think if you write a book, you you should make some money off the book. If you have a modest business that also involves apologetics, then yeah, I understand. Because I, I mean, I want to be a religious scholar, I will get paid to do religious stuff, and I am sure that at some point I will be on the clock doing some apologetic work. But in your own personal life, I would make sure that you refuse payments. And that's a bit of a tricky subject, I'll admit that. If you if you think about it though, I think the number one criticism that people can lobby against people is that they're doing it for the money. I'll be transparent. I make zero dollars and zero cents at Fair Mormon. Fair Mormon is constructed of volunteers. And the reason why I think that's beautiful is because it shows that we are doing this because it's something that we care about. We, we, we don't see the typical return on your investment. I know I don't. Um, but my return on my investment has always been feeling like I can help people feeling like I can bring them closer to Christ. That's why I do what I do. I don't do what I do because I'm making money off it. Because I'm not. I'm making no dollars off of it. What I am coming to grips with is a greater understanding of Christ and a greater love for Christ's people. And the final point that I want to make about apologetics, and I'll just summarize how you can be an apologist at the end of this video, uh, not video, at the end of this podcast. The final point that I would like to make about apologetics is that Remember who you're doing the work for. This seems like a basic point, but let me share a a spiritual experience that I had a couple weeks ago. I've been working on this article. I knew that it would kind of cause a splash. I didn't show it to anyone. Um, I still haven't shown it to that many people. And 
I was trying to submit it and then I showed it to one person and they completely tore it apart. And at this point, I was a little bit frustrated because I was like, okay, I've been working on this for the longest time. It's been completely ripped to shreds, blah, 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 blah. And I had a moment where God very clearly spoke to me and said, remember who it is you're doing this for. And that's when it came into my mind. I'm not doing this for myself and I don't think we can do this work for ourselves because while this work, I find it fun, I find it interesting, ultimately the reason I find it so fulfilling is because of Jesus Christ. Because this is his work and this is his church and defending his church is a noble effort. But we have to remember that when we do it, we are not doing it for clout, we are not doing it to make money, we're not doing it because it's simply enjoyable. I think that that detracts from the purpose. We're doing it because it is for him. It is a way to glorify him. By setting our sights on him and not on ourselves, we become more effective apologists. I think in my own life when I have focused on Christ and when I have seen how Christ wants me to preach his gospel, that's when I have really been affected, uh, effective. That's what I meant by guiding principle. When I talk about a guiding principle of apologetics, I'm talking about a philosophically consistent way to understand what you do. For me, the philosophically consistent way to understand what I do and how I do it is that everything for myself, for others, is about coming unto Christ. It's Christ-centered, and that seems like a basic point, and it is. It's a really basic, simple point, but by understanding that, I can then work my apologetics to be Christ-centered. I can talk about things that seem tangential to Christ, such as the law of Moses, which obviously he fulfilled, but if you're just talking about the law of Moses, you don't necessarily have to talk about that. You can talk about how it's a type for Christ. You can talk about how one of my favorite stories is in Genesis when Abraham and Isaac are going up to be sacrificed, and Isaac asks like where's the lamb and then abraham says my son god will provide well god will see to it that there is a lamb for us to sacrifice that was one of the most impactful lines of scripture i have ever read god will see to it that there is a lamb for us to sacrifice you can talk about how this leads you to a belief in christ how this leads you to a knowledge of christ because at the end of the day what we do is what we do is a lot of academic work there is a lot of of the writing process involved and a lot of the research process involved. We're not doing this work because it is purely eisegetical. Most of what we should most of what we should do in apologetics should be exegesis. We should really be looking at the scriptures. We should be using those as primary sources. Everything else as secondary sources. We should be constructing logical arguments because once you do that, you're able to constructing logical arguments and showing how they relate to scriptures using reason, using all the tools at your disposal. We should be doing all of that. But taking a step back, I think it is so incredibly important to ensure that everything comes back to the atonement of Christ. Because if you can't teach self-reliance without mentioning the atonement of Christ, you shouldn't be teaching self-reliance. That's a paraphrase of a quote that I really like. Anyway, so if I had to summarize how I would suggest that you become an apologist, how I would suggest that you defend the faith, how I would suggest that you and your family defend the faith, here, here it goes. I'll just do a quick summary. Read the scriptures super well. Read scholarship, 
read apologetics, read way more than you write, pick an audience, draft things an umpteen amount of times, show them to many people, get advice on them, and eventually start doing it publicly. Keep the faith at the forefront. While ultimately we are a academic, uh, while ultimately we are doing an academic effort, as I just said, connecting it back to the atonement of Christ is the most important thing, because we don't see faith and study as divorced from each other. We don't see, we don't wear a hat that we're like, okay, this is my scholarly hat and this is my faith hat. I think those hats can sometimes be ineffective because. They cause us to see our worldview differently. Our scholarly hat can be the same as our faith hat because we believe in a sort of mind-spirit connection where we can use logic and reasoning to ascertain the meaning of God and the meaning of deity. So I'll share a little bit of a thought about my personal apologetics before moving on to the devotional. We're doing a devotional instead of come follow me this week, but it should be fun. Um, so one of my personal experiences with apologetics was when I was a bit younger, I was 18 and I started writing a book. I wanted to write a book that proved the existence of God in a particular way from nothing. So I did a ton of research on particle physics because I wanted to use that in this particular book. I thought it would be very effective. I spent hours poring over books about particle physics, trying to understand it, and I kept coming up with nothing. And I kept being like, okay, well, so I can't defend this from physics. How can I defend the faith? And I had this very poignant moment where God was like, Hannah, you know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Just do that. Um, You know about Mesoamerican archaeology and other things like that. You're learning Mayan. Do that. Rather than do something that is not in your wheelhouse, pick the things that are in your wheelhouse. So I think when we talk about apologetics too, we have to remember that there is a place for everyone. There is a place for computer scientists. There's a place for business people. There's a place for classicists. There's a place for you. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Make your apologetics as personal as they can be. Talk about how your experiences shape who you are. And since I took that view, I've gone more of a traditional route. Um, But that's partially because I just enjoy the traditional route. That's the route that I've been on since the beginning. Anyways, so those are my thoughts on apologetics. Please let me know how you would like to be an apologist, how you believe it should work. Um, and I want to talk about this idea of being a co-worker in Christ for the devotional today. And I'm drawing upon Philemon. So I'm just going to read the chapter. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's 25 verses. And then I'm going to share a few thoughts. This should be kind of fun. Um, a couple of you suggested that you would like me to just read scripture sometimes because you find it soothing or something like that. I don't know. Perhaps that's a personal preference, but a lot of you have said that, so I figured might as well. I'll stop along the way. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy our brother, and to Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our uh, beloved Apathia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a letter, so obviously the format is a bit different, but I would like to point out that 
He talks about how grace and peace comes from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ and wishes this upon his friend. I think that this is really important because oftentimes when we talk about how we introduce ourselves, it might seem a bit silly, but we often talk more about ourselves than we do about other people or more about ourselves than we do about God. And I think a semantic shift could be helpful in some instances. I feel cheesy when I do it sometimes, but I have had a lot of people say that it's been helpful for them. That's just a suggestion. I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast towards the Lord Jesus Christ and towards all saints, that the communication of thy faith may be effectual by acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Jesus in Christ Jesus. Pause. I really like this because he leads by talking about God and then he talks about the things that Philemon does well. I think that that's a really good way to understand how to communicate with people. I look at the letters as a model in a lot of different instances and I find that this is effective. One of the other things that I like about this too is we've seen the phrases co-worker, co-laborer, co-fellow uh, soldier essentially within this verse so far and I like that he says that the communication of thy faith may be effectual by acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. There is that connection, there is that co-workerness in Christ manifest in both the structure and in the directness of what he says. And I think that that's really important and really cool about this particular text. And this is a way to help us understand what exactly it means to be a co-worker in Christ. And I think that's a really important point. And when we're talking about apologetics, I think, you know, understanding that we are co-workers in Christ, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is a really important part. So it reads, For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech ye, being such and one as Paul the aged and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So let's take let's take a moment and unpack some of the things that are said there. I like what it says that he wants to be bold in Christ. Um and that he is not going to just do what is convenient. He's going to do something out of love. Um, and I think that this is important because the gospel is not convenient. The gospel isn't really necessarily going to be politically correct. It's not going to be politically amenable. It's not going to be socially amenable in a lot of instances. You will face some criticism, and I have myself. And I think this boldness in Christ, rather being bold in ourselves, is the biggest difference. Being bold in Christ means looking at his church, looking at his truths, and being able to preach those and standing firm in those as opposed to taking our opinions and our worldviews and superimposing them upon the church. This difference for me is the difference between being an apologist and not being an apologist, I guess, is being an apologist, you seek to understand what Christ has for his church and relay that being any other form of, I think, religious advocate where you take your opinions and show why they are right within the text is wrong. I think that there's that, I think there's a semantic shift, a semantic difference, and it might not seem that big, but it is. Anyways, we read on. 
I beseech thee for my son, Oisimenus, whom I for I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was uh, was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is my own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him for ever, not now as a servant, but above a certain servant, a brother, beloved specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Pause. I really like this because this is a great example of what the of what Christ's atonement does for us. Christ's atonement allows us to take burdens upon ourselves that belong to other people and try to help them with it. We can't do it in the same sense that Christ does it in the sense that we can't you know, lobby for forgiveness of their sins. We can't do anything like that. But we can develop empathy because we are a co-worker with Christ. Because Christ, Christ's atonement, he knows us perfectly. Because he suffered for our sins, he understands how we felt when we sinned, and he understands what it feels like to sin, being sinless himself. We can have that same feeling when we are co-workers in Christ. We can pray to understand and to help others be less judgmental towards people's sins. And I think that that's beautiful. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say, but withal prepare also for a lot, uh, prepare me also a lodging. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Ephrasus, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristocratus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So just a general thought to close on. We talked a lot about apologetics today and how to be a co-worker in Christ. I think centering apologetics upon the atonement of Christ, centering what we do upon the atonement of Christ, and recognizing that if the church is true, then it is worth defending, is the best is the best way that we can become apologists for the church. When we co-labor with Christ as opposed to doing our own work, that is when we find blessings, that is when we find joy, love, and eternal life. Because ultimately, while this is this is fun and I enjoy I enjoy learning about Jesus and I enjoy learning about the gospel of Christ. I don't do it because I enjoy it necessarily. I do it because I want to be a co-worker with Christ. And I want to bear testimony that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that the Book of Mormon is true and I sustain my church leaders and I love them so much. I believe in the truthfulness of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and I believe that we all can strive to defend it and that's how we build Zion.